Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. How many of you remember learning how to tie your shoe? Do you remember that? Learning how to tie your shoe? That's one of the first things that you learn is how to tie your shoe. Maybe it was a parent or a brother or sister. Maybe it was a a teacher, somebody that you knew. They taught you how to tie your shoe because as you get a little bit older, no more slip-ons, no more Velcro, no more those little jelly shoes with the sparkles for little girls. No, it's time for you to learn how to tie your shoe. And and so because if you don't tie it just right, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, and it's not going to end very well. And if you miss a step, well, then you have to start all over. So do you remember learning how to tie your shoe? Did they teach you the song? Okay, over, under, around, through, meet Mr. Bunny and pull it through. You got to learn how to tie a knot. You got two laces. You need to tie them. You need to make it a knot because again, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, and it's not going to end very well. So when you're little, they teach you how to tie your shoe. Got to tie the knot. You get a little bit older. They teach you how to tie a double knot. You get a little bit older. You tie a different knot. We call that marriage. But whenever you come to the Bible, there's another knot that you need to learn how to tie, and it's what John Calvin calls the holy knot, okay? That it's Jesus' words and Jesus' works. It is what Jesus says, and it is what Jesus does. When you put them together, it forms what is called the holy knot. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to see the holy knot. We're going to see his words and his works at work in your life. We're continuing our series called The Simple Gospel through the book of Mark. We're taking the better part of two years, walking line by line, verse by verse, through this very helpful book, and we're looking to see who Jesus is, what Jesus says and what Jesus does. See, that's the holy knot. And this is very important because some people, they love Jesus's words, but they don't believe in Jesus's works. That they don't believe in healings or miracles or things like deliverance. No, no, no. We love Jesus's words, but we don't believe in Jesus's works. Now, other people, they'll say, no, I, I love what Jesus does. I love Jesus's works how he welcomes the the sinners and the outcasts and orphans and prostitutes and tax collectors, that he calls the children unto himself, that he does some miracles. I believe that Jesus was a, he was a good person who said some, you know, good things and that he, you know, he lived a good life. But whenever it comes to believing that Jesus is God, Jesus' words, the things that Jesus says, that he declared himself to be God, that he was going to go to the cross, that he is the only way for salvation, that no one can come to the Father except through him, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he judges the living and the dead, and one day he's going to come back and you need to repent. Those things? No, thank you. Right, we don't believe in those things because, well, they love Jesus' works, but they don't love Jesus' words. The truth is that you need both, that you need Jesus' words and works because if you have his words without his works or his works without his words, it's like the holy knot. Everything's going to unravel. It's going to fall apart. It's going to come untied. You have to have both. Jesus' words, Jesus' work, working together in your life for his glory and your greatest joy. And today, we're going to see this play out in the life of four friends and one man who happens to be paralyzed. So we're in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we're going to see the words and the works of Jesus. So here's how we're going to do it. Normally, what I like to do is verse by verse, or I'll just kind of go point one, point two, point three. But today we're going to do it a little bit different. Um, I'm just going to read it and we're going to tell the story so that way you can just see just exactly what is happening because this is a fantastic story. So we're starting in verse one. 
Here's what it says. And when he, that's Jesus, returns, returns to Capernaum after some days. Okay, so the last time that we saw Jesus, he was very famous. That there was people pushing and pulling, making demands and requests on Jesus. He's very popular, so much so that he's not even able to enter back into the town. That he's on the outside of town, and so he just goes to the desolate place where he practices his spiritual disciplines of prayer and silence and solitude, getting time alone with God. He gets a couple of days off. We've been wondering, is Jesus ever going to get a break? Okay, he got a couple of days off just now, and Jesus, he's very popular. Okay, we would say that he's trending on Twitter, he's gone viral on iTunes, right? He's in the little left-hand column on your Facebook profile. Everyone's looking for Jesus. He's on every single news station. Jesus is a pretty popular dude. And up until this point, everybody wants to see him, but now, well, the attention's died down a little bit, just enough for him to be able to sneak back home. And it says that he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. Now, we know from the rest of the scriptures that Jesus, he doesn't actually have a home. That Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth, but Capernaum is in Galilee. And the rest of the Bible tells us that Jesus was actually homeless. So what does it mean by he was at home? Most scholars believe that this is a reference to Simon Peter's house. That Simon Peter was the leader of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus, he uses his home as a headquarters and a base of operation for his Galilean ministry. So this story is taking place at the same place that we saw a couple weeks ago where Jesus comes and heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And that's where Jesus is living. And it is a base of operations for Jesus' early Galilean ministry. So he's at home, he's hanging out with his disciples, that they're sharing a meal, they're spending time with one another. And then here's what happens. Verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching. What's the word? He was preaching the word. So there we see Jesus's words. Okay. Jesus was a preacher. There's this myth that's gone out today that Jesus, he wasn't really a preacher and that the church shouldn't really preach. We should just sit in circles and have dialogue. Okay. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't just walk around saying pithy Zen-like statements, drinking sleepy time tea and sitting in the lotus position, giving everybody hugs. No, Jesus comes and Jesus is a preacher. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes preaching and he he comes proclaiming because Jesus is a preacher and Jesus, he loves to preach. Guess what? I love to preach too. And so Jesus, he comes and he's preaching. I want you to think about this. It's basically like a community group. I mean, that's exactly what it is. The first thing that Jesus does, he finds four fishermen. He says, come and follow me. He goes back to their house and then they share a meal. They study the word together. Jesus preaches, they worship together. They do life together. They do ministry together. It's a community group. And that's the exact same thing that we do 2000 years later. Okay, that's the same thing. We get together, we read the Bible, we share a meal, that we do life together. We do ministry together because, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So 2,000 years later, we're still following the ministry model of Jesus. And so the big idea is you need to be in a community group. Okay, if Jesus was in a community group, then you should be in a community group because you're not better than Jesus. So get in a group. Jesus, he, he, he starts a community group. Now, how many of you would want to be in Jesus' group? You're like, yes, I would sign up if Jesus was the leader. I would love to be in Jesus' 
group. Could you imagine having a, a Bible study led by Jesus? We're like, it's a lot better than the discussion leader at our group. That's for sure, right? Jesus starts a Bible study. Everybody wants to be there. That's when it says that the many they were gathered together because the people, they, they want to know, they want to see, they want to hear Jesus' words. They want to see Jesus' works. And this is crowded. Okay, it says that there was no more room, not even at the door. So this is people just crammed into one single house that people are sitting on the floor. They're standing on the sides that some people they're standing in the back. They're on their tippy toes, right? They're at the doorway. They're looking in through the windows. What is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to say? They want to see, they want to hear Jesus words, Jesus works for them. It's that it's that holy knot. And so there's this big crowd. Everybody's pushing, everybody's pulling, everybody's right there. So what do you think is going to happen next? There's this Bible study. It's going great. It's going well. Well, here's how it happens. Verse 3, and they came, bringing a paralytic. So this man, he is crippled. He is paralyzed. That he is carried by four men. And when they could, got, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, I just want you to imagine this. Okay, can, you, can you just imagine this scenario? Okay, you're at Bible study, community group, it's packed, it's crowded, and then you have four men. And these men are friends. Okay? And, and these four friends, they have another friend who is paralyzed. He's hurt, he's injured, something's happened in his life, it doesn't really tell us what, but this man, he is injured, he's, he's a paralytic, he, he, he can't walk. And so these four friends, they hear that Jesus is in town. That, that Jesus is there, and they know about Jesus' words because, well, they've heard it. They're from Capernaum, but they also know about Jesus' works. They know that Jesus is healed. They know that Jesus has performed miracles. They know that he has delivered people, and so they think, we have to get our friend to Jesus, that we have to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus, and so they just begin to drag him. I mean, one guy grabs one side of the mat, the other guy grabs the other, and they just pick him up and they, they drag him, they, they pull him, they bring him all the way to Jesus. Could be a couple of miles. These are some really good friends, amen? I mean, do any of your friends pick you up and carry you everywhere? I mean, we could totally use some friends like this. If you don't have friends like this, well, we need to be the friends like that. And so these friends, they drag him to Jesus, they get all the way to the house, and then there's a problem. They can't get in. That it's so crowded, these men, they can't get their friend to Jesus. That the place is packed. There's no more room. There's no room, not even at the door, for them to be able to get in and come and see Jesus. This is quite a dilemma. What do you think they do? Do they just give up? Do, do they go home? Do they turn around? Do they say to their friend, well, I guess today's not your day to meet Jesus. Oh, I guess you're just not going to get healed today. I guess it's just not our luck. It's just not in the cards Okay, we just need to go home. We need to turn around. Well, today's just not our good day. Is that what they do? No. They don't give up. They don't give in. They don't turn around. They don't just go home empty-handed. Okay, they figure out a way. They find a way. If there is a will, there is a way. And they think we are going to make a way. And so they get a little creative. And one of them, they, they, they say, okay, team huddle, team huddle. Everybody get in here. Okay, huddle up. Okay, this isn't in the Bible, but this is the way I read it. Uh, they get together in a little huddle and they say, okay, here's the problem. We have to figure out how to get this guy to Jesus. Right? Jesus is in there, right? We're out here. No bueno. We have to figure out how to get our buddy in there because I love you, dude, but I'm not carrying you home. 
Okay, I've already carried you here for like a mile. You're heavy. I'm hot. I'm sweaty. It's nasty. You're walking home one way or the other. We're going to get you healed because I ain't carrying you. Okay, I, I love you, but it's not going to happen. So we have to come up with a plan. So they're together in the huddle. And they say, okay, well, what's your plan? Anybody got an idea? One guy, he's like, okay, I got a plan. They're like, okay, you got a plan. He's like, don't freak out. Okay, well, what's your plan? He's like, all right. We cut a hole in the ceiling and then we lower him down. He's like, what? That's your plan? I said, don't freak out. Okay, we cut a hole in the ceiling and then we lower him down. You're like, how is that even? What if we drop him? You're like, well, his legs are already broken. What's the worst that could happen? Okay, if they weren't thinking it, if they didn't say it, they, they were thinking it, amen? And so one friend's like, okay, we're going to cut a hole. We're going to lower him down. Okay, you get this side. I'll get this side. You go up top. You stand for lookout. Make sure we don't get arrested. And then we're just going to cut a hole and we're going to lower him down. They're like, that is a terrible plan. Okay, well, do you have a better plan? No? Then we're going with my plan. And that's exactly what they do. That they cut a hole in the house, somebody else's house. This is not their house. You don't do home renovations on other people's houses. And they cut a hole and they lower their friend down. And that's how he comes to know Jesus. Okay, here's the big question. What are you willing to do to get your friends to Jesus? What links are you willing to go through to get your friends to Jesus? Because we all know and love people who do not know and love Jesus. And it's our job, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility and opportunity to do whatever it takes to get our friends to Jesus. Because when they meet Jesus, their lives change. What are you willing to do to get your friends to Jesus? How many of you, you feel discouraged when it comes to sharing your faith? Okay, you guys are all super saints. Okay, some of us, like me, we feel discouraged when it comes to sharing my faith, right? I mean, how many of you are like, oh, I invited them and then they said no. And then I invited them again and then they said no. And so I invited them again and then they said no. And then I invited them again and then they said yes. And then they didn't show up on Sunday. And you're like, what, what happened? And they give me some lame excuses to why they couldn't come to church or why they didn't go to community group. And I share my story with them. They're not listening. I try to tell them about Jesus and they don't seem to be very interested. And so what do you do? Do you just give up? Do you say, well, I guess maybe they're never going to be saved. I guess maybe, maybe it's just, maybe they're not, maybe they're not ready yet. Maybe I'm bothering them. Maybe I'm bugging them, right? Maybe it's not me who's going to lead them to Jesus. And so you just kind of give up. You just give in. You just kind of turn around and you go home empty handed. Is that what we do? No. We don't do that. We find any way that we can to get our friends to Jesus. We keep praying. We keep inviting. We keep investing. We get creative. We remove the obstacles and the barriers that prevent people from coming to know and love Jesus. And we are willing to do whatever it takes to see as many people meet Jesus as possible. Just please don't cut a hole in the ceiling here because we pay rent. Okay, as a church, we will open the door as wide as we can so you don't have to cut a hole in the ceiling, but we should be doing anything short of sin so that way our friends can come to know and love and serve Jesus because when people meet Jesus, their lives are changed. And so these are some pretty amazing friends that these friends, they do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. And then what does this guy even say? Like they cut a hole, they lower him down. He's like, hi, Jesus, I'm paralyzed. Here I am. What are you going to do about it? I mean, it really is kind of funny. So what do you think Jesus' response is going to be to this, to this situation? How do you think Jesus is going to respond? I love this. Okay, and here's how he says it. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
So what what does Jesus see? He sees their faith. The way that Jesus sees things and the way that we see things tend to be totally different. I mean, if you were in that room, okay, what would you see? What would be the first thing that you would see if you were in that room? How many of you, you would see the hole in the ceiling? You're like, they just got a hole in the ceiling. Right, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to fix that? Who's going to clean this up? I ain't cleaning it up. Right? I mean, how, who the heck cuts holes in people's ceilings? Like the first thing that we would do is we would see, we would see the big giant hole. Okay, others of us, well, we would see all the people. Okay, all the introverts in the room, you're like, I can't be around these people. Oh my God, somebody touched me. Oh my God, they're in my personal space. I can't breathe. I can't move. I'm hyperventilating. Somebody spilled something on the couch. They're tracking mud in on the floor. I don't even know their names. How did these people get here? Some of you, you would see all the people and you would freak out. And others of you, you're extroverts and you're like, more people, more fun, right? And so that's kind of how you would see. You would look, you would notice all of the other people in the room. Okay, others of us, what we would notice is that they just interrupted Jesus' sermon. How rude is that? You can't go interrupting somebody's sermons, right? You're that inconsiderate. Can't you see Jesus is preaching? Shh, this is church, right? No talking in church. You gotta be quiet. You gotta be serious. And so some of us, we would see, we would see that they just interrupted Jesus' sermon. Okay, others, you would just see the man. Right? You would see the man being lowered down, and you would feel sorry for him. You wouldn't know his name. You would just know his situation. You wouldn't see him for who he is. You would just see him because of his legs, that his legs didn't work. And then you would begin to feel pity for the man. You'd think, well, what happened to him? How hard is his life? Man, that must be, that must be really difficult for that man. I mean, he's got good friends, but he must be a burden on all of his friends. I mean, they have to carry him everywhere. And then we would feel pity, or we'd feel sorry, or we would see the man, not for who he is, but for what has happened to him, and then we'd start thinking about the man. Those aren't the things that Jesus sees. That Jesus sees things differently than the way that we see things. See, we tend to look at all of the things that are happening around us. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is looking for faith. Jesus sees their faith. I love that. That they didn't notice the obstacles. It was an opportunity for faith. And Jesus sees that. And Jesus sees their faith. So how is he going to respond now? Verse 5, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this has got to be a bummer, amen? I mean, this dude, right? They went through all of that work. They had this genius plan. Cut a hole in the ceiling. Lower him down. He has to meet Jesus. And then Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, I I don't know about you guys, but I would be upset. Okay, I, I would be like, oh, thanks, Jesus. My sins are forgiven. Yay. Okay, boys, go ahead. Pull me back up. Got what it came for. Who needs to walk when you can be forgiven? Thanks, Jesus. See you later. I'm done. Go ahead and pull me up because I got what I wanted. Now, do you think that this is really what that man wanted? Do you think this is really the reason that man was there? No. Everyone knew this is not the reason that man was there. This is not what that man wanted. He, he said, thanks, Jesus. Right? You, heal, you forgave me, but in case you didn't notice, my legs are still broken. 
right? I didn't want. He wasn't thinking about his sins. He wasn't thinking about forgiveness. He didn't want, he, he didn't want to be forgiven. He wanted to walk. He wanted a healing. He wanted a miracle. He wanted his legs to work. And in that moment, Jesus didn't give him what he wanted. Jesus gave him what he needed. Because the greatest need this man has is for forgiveness. See, somehow this man's sin and his situation are connected. Now, this isn't always the case, but this is many times the case. It's not a stretch of imagination to say that many of the situations that we find ourselves in our lives is a result of sin. That it's a result of sin. Your sin, my sin, somebody's sin, but many of the situations that we find ourselves in are as a result of our sin. I grew up knowing a guy who, he was a bad dude, um, and, and before he met Jesus, he was a drug dealer, he was in a motorcycle gang, and in a drug deal gone bad, he got shot in the chest multiple times by a shotgun. Okay? And he didn't die, but he did live the rest of his life paralyzed. Now that man's situation was a result of his sin. That was his fault. There was no one he could blame. There was no one he could sue. He was not a victim. There was no excuse. His sin led to his situation. And that's the same place that many of us find ourselves at today. That sin destroys our lives. That sin has destroyed your life. That it has run its course. It has wreaked havoc. It has ruined you. That sin has destroyed your health. You've drank so much that your liver's shot. You've done drugs to the point your brain is fried. You've slept with so many people, been promiscuous to the point to where now you have shame. That sin has destroyed your relationships. That your marriage is falling apart. Your children won't listen to you. They rebel against you. That your friendships are strained. That sin it has caused you to flunk out of school and get fired from your job. And you know it's all your fault. That there is no one you can blame. There is nothing that you can do. There is no excuses that you can make. That sin has literally, totally destroyed your life. Because that's what sin does. And we come to Jesus and we say, fix me, fix me, fix me. Here's all my problems. And Jesus saying, your biggest problem is not your situation. Your biggest problem is your sin. And that you don't just need fixing, you need forgiveness. Because the biggest problem in our lives is not our situations. Your biggest problem is your sin. That sin, it destroys you. That it literally destroys you. Sin destroys your identity. Sin, it destroys your destiny. Sin, it robs you of community. You can no longer have true, deep, meaningful relationships with other people. And sin, it separates you from God. That you are separated from him and apart from the person and work of Jesus in your life, sin always leads to death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Sin always leads to death. Your biggest problem is not your situation. Friends, you need to hear me on this. Your biggest problem is your sin. And Jesus knows this man doesn't need new legs. This man needs a new heart. What good are legs if you're not going to walk with Jesus? What good is a new job if you're not going to be saved? What good is relationships and marriage and children and, and friendships and hobbies and interests if you're just going to constantly, continually be making a mess of your life, ruining it and wrecking it, not only for you, but for everyone around you? Your biggest problem is not your situation. It is your sin. Now, don't think for a second that Jesus is not about to heal this dude. Because he's totally going to heal him. But before he heals him, he forgives him. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
be forgiven. That whatever has led you to this point, I forgive you. That whatever has happened in your life, your biggest mistake, the worst day, your worst decision, the things that haunt you, the things that keep you awake at night, the things that follow you around, I forgive you. Your past is forgiven. Forgive you. Your your shame. It's forgiven. And Jesus says to this man, Son, I forgive you. Because forgiveness is more important in this moment than Jesus just fixing him. Because he needs to be forgiven. I mean, if we were to stop the story right here, I could do an altar call right now and we'd all get saved. This is a pretty great story, right? You're like, this guy got forgiven. This guy saw Jesus and all the things that are happening and Jesus saw right through it all. And he forgave him. This is great. You would think everybody would be happy right about now, right? Wrong. Because the story, it continues. Okay, here's here's what happens next. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes, they were sitting there. The scribes, want, want. We'll talk about them in a sec. They were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, before we go any further, I'm going to have to do something, okay? I have to introduce to you first century Jewish religious systems and the religious leaders, okay? Because here we see the scribes, and we're going to see them continually through the remainder of Mark. And this section of scripture is actually one of the first of five controversies in the next couple of chapters where the religious leaders enter into Jesus's ministry. They have conflict, they have contention, and there becomes this constant fight between Jesus and the religious leaders. So I need to kind of do a brief overview of the six different types of religious systems that were at work in first century Judaism. The first is a group known as the Essenes. Okay, the Essenes, they were like the fundamental homeschool co-op, live out in the middle of the woods, stockpile weapons, and wait until the end of the world people. Okay, do you know anybody like that? Right, out in the woods, you know, East Texas, think about them like that. So that's the Essenes, right? And they thought, the world is bad, culture is bad, okay, we're good, so we're going to disconnect from all of the society, and we're just going to wait until everything burns. Okay, that's who the Essenes were. Now, the Essenes, they're never actually mentioned in Mark, but it is helpful for you to understand the religious climate of the day. The second group is what's known as the Zealots. Okay? Now, the Zealots, they were like the punk rock, emo, anarchist kids of the day. They, they would wear all black, put a bandana over their face, live in their mom's basement, and tweet about how they're going to plan protests and riots to take down the man. Okay, that's who the Essenes were, they were or the Zealots were. Um, they were like the, the riot people. Okay? The third group is what's known as the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were, they, they were the ruling class, political, elite, religious leaders of the day. So think about them kind of like the alt-right. Okay? That's who the Sadducees were. And the Sadducees, they, they weren't concerned about living according to the Bible. They were concerned about getting rich, working with Rome in, in rebellion against the Jewish faith, and maintaining their status quo of power, prestige, and privilege. And the Essenes, or rather the, the Sadducees, they had a very liberal theology. So they didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the coming of the Messiah. The only thing that they believed in was getting rich and maintaining their power. Some things never change. The fourth group is what's called as the scribes. 
Now, the scribes, they're like the seminary professors of the day. I mean, they are educated beyond their intelligence. They have more degrees than Fahrenheit. And the scribes, they, they had all of the Old Testament totally memorized. Okay, but not only did they have the Old Testament memorized, they also had all the rabbinic teachings over the last 500 years. They've read the books. They've read the blogs. They've read the footnotes and the footnotes about the footnotes and the maps in the back and the appendix. These guys, they are like rock stars to first century Jewish people. Okay, and in order for you to become a scribe, you have to be 40 years old, you have to be formally educated, and you have to grow up through the religious systems. And for the scribes, the Bible, it wasn't sufficient enough for them. Okay, they would read the Old Testament, they're like, there's only 613 laws in here. We need to come up with some more. And so they, they would go beyond the Bible. They would make rules and regulations, impose them on people's lives. And they said, if you want to be holy, if you want to be righteous, then you need to do these things and you need to live your life like us. And the scribes, because of this, they got very rich. And everybody wanted to be a scribe. Okay, little boys, right? When little boys would grow up, they would say, mommy, I want to be a scribe. And that's what they looked for. Little girls, when they would grow up, they would say, I want to marry a man who is a scribe because everybody wanted to be scribes. Well, the fifth group is what's known as the Pharisees. Okay, now the Pharisees, you probably heard a lot about these guys. The Pharisees, they're the entourage of the scribes. That's who they are. Everywhere the scribe goes, the Pharisees, that's where they're at. Anything a scribe says, the Pharisees, that's what they say. Anything a scribe does, the Pharisees, that's what they do. Because the Pharisees, their job was to enforce the teaching of the scribes across the culture. And, and so the, the Pharisees, they weren't highly educated, but they weren't undereducated. They weren't rich, but they weren't poor. They were middle class. They were very strict. They were very devout. They were very devoted. And they were very religious. And they were very annoying because that's what religious people are. Okay, religious people, they are very annoying. And as we read through Mark, the Pharisees, they just begin to follow Jesus around everywhere, making sure that Jesus is obeying their scribes' teachings. And, and we'll run into them a lot, and so you'll, you'll get to understand them. And then the fifth group, sixth group, is what's known as the many. Okay, this is the crowd. This is people just like you and me. Okay, these are just your basic, ordinary, average, first century Jewish people. We see them right here in the scriptures where it says, and many were gathered together. That's who they're talking about. It's, it's this, the many. It's just your basic, ordinary, first century Jewish person. And they would be devout, that they would go to synagogue and they would worship and they would pray and they'd read their Bible and you know, they would have a job and they would take care of their family and they would just try to live a godly life. But because of all of these religious structures, they were oppressed, they were opposed, they were being pushed down upon and they lived very difficult lives. Because to them, well, the scribes, right, they're just enforcing all these new laws. The Pharisees, everywhere I go, they're getting on my nerves. Right? The Zealots are trying to kill us. The Essenes are just stockpiling weapons. The Sadducees are stealing all of our money. Rome keeps just arresting us and throwing us in prison. This is first century Jewish living. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they say Jesus is so much different. He's different than everything. That Jesus is so different than religion. And so they become enamored with Jesus because of his teachings. Jesus comes preaching, good news. They're like, good news, it's about time. Right? I could totally use some good news right about now. The kingdom of God is at hand. That sounds great. Sign me up. Because when Jesus comes teaching, his words are so much different than religion. So they are enamored with Jesus' words. But they also love Jesus' works. They see the healings. They're like, that's pretty cool. 
Miracles, I'll take two, please. Okay, deliverance, that's a little trippy, casting out demons and stuff, but it must be a sight to see. And so they become enamored with his words and his works because when Jesus comes on the scene, he is so much different than anything that they knew, anything that they saw, and anything that they experienced. And so in this section of scripture, we see that there's the many, we see that there's scribes, which also means that there's going to be Pharisees. Okay, and so where is the scribes? Where are they sitting at? It says that they're sitting in the front. Jesus is preaching a sermon. They're sitting in the front. And what are they doing? Are they listening? No, they're arguing. They're not there to learn. They're there to criticize. They have their Bibles wide open and, and, and they're going through. They're looking at the lexicon and the concordance and, and they're checking his Hebrew and his syntax. They're like, hmm, I wonder what translation he's using. I don't like that translation. Oh, 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 did you see that trans? Where, where did he go to school at? What scribe did he send her? I, he looks like he's pretty young. I don't like what he's wearing. I don't think that I don't think that I would have said it like that. They're not there to learn. Instead, they're there to argue because religious people love to argue. And they're sitting and they're not serving and they're not doing anything because religious people, they don't do anything. And so just think about it. The room is packed. It's crowded. There's people everywhere. They're pushing on their shoulders. People are on their tippy toes out in the middle of the door. And where are the religious people at? They're sitting on the front row. Right? You would think these are the people of model compassion and, com and concern for people who are hurting or those who are in need. And they don't even get up. There's this guy who needs to get to Jesus. He can't get to Jesus. And they don't move. They don't do anything. That they're taking up all the good seats because that's what religion does. Religion just gets in the way of people meeting Jesus. Religious people are terrible. They're horrible. They're the worst. And so you would think they would say, hole in the ceiling, forgiven man. Great stuff. That's amazing. There's compassion. There's love. Yeah, Jesus forgave him. You would think that they would be happy, right? No, because religious people, they're never happy. And so here's what they say. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They say, Jesus, you can't do that. That's not right. That's wrong. In fact, that's worse than wrong. Jesus, you are blaspheming. This is a crime that is punishable by death. They say that because Jesus forgave his sins, Jesus deserves to die, that the religious leaders, they rightfully understood the power of the claim that Jesus just made. They said, Jesus, you can't say that because only God can forgive sins. See, friends, we can forgive someone's actions. God is the only person who can forgive a person's sins. And whenever Jesus says, I forgive your sins, Jesus is declaring himself to be God. And they say, you can't say that because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, exactly. Friends, some of you have been lied to. You've been told that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not true. In fact, over and over again, once here in Mark, publicly, emphatically, undoubtedly, undeniably, Jesus claimed himself to be God. Jesus says that I can forgive you of your sins. And the religious leaders, they hated him. They opposed him. They resisted him. Not just because of his works, but because of his words. Not just what he did, but it's because of what he said. That Jesus says, I can forgive you of your sins. Friends, this is totally different than any other world religion. No religion teaches that I can forgive your sins. The Buddha never said, I can forgive you of your sins. 
Muhammad never said, I can forgive you of your sins. Krishna or Vishnu never said, I can forgive you of your sins. That Abraham and Moses never said, I can forgive you of your sins. Jesus alone says, I'm God and I can forgive you of your sins because Jesus is different than religion. Every other religion says, if you do this, then you can be forgiven. If you do this, then I will forgive you. That if you go to this holy place, if you make this journey, this pilgrimage, if you go to Mecca, then I will forgive you. That if you give this much money, you tithe this percent. That if you read this translation, dress in these clothes, then I will forgive you. That if you reincarnate and pay off your karmic debt, that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you give out enough good vibes, then maybe, possibly, at the end of your life, you might be forgiven. And Jesus says, I'm God, and I forgive you. That's what Jesus does, because that's who Jesus is. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He says, I can forgive you. I want to forgive you. I long to forgive you. And Jesus says, you're forgiven, because Jesus alone forgives sins. Well, everyone knows what Jesus just did. I mean, the room is hitting each other on their elbows. They're like, did you see that? Jesus just claimed to be God. Did you, did you see him just forgive that man's sins? Everyone falls quiet. Everybody's really hushed because they, they understand. They know what Jesus just did. Well, the religious leaders, they become very angry. They get very indignant towards Jesus, and then Jesus perceives this. And so here's how Jesus responds. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves. Okay, just a note, if you're talking to somebody and they can read your mind, might be an indicator, they might be God and know what they're talking about. I mean, you would think that they're like, ah, I'm angry at Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'll tell you why you're angry at me, because I can read your mind. You're like, whoa, okay. So, so he, he goes to them and says, Jesus said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus is asking them, what's easier, to forgive the man or to heal the man? So here's what he does. But that you might know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, it comes from Daniel 14, that it's an obscure reference to the Messiah, the suffering servant, that Jesus is fully God, fully man. He is the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately. Mark's favorite word. He rose, picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. First, this man gets forgiven. And then he gets healed. That first he hears Jesus's words, and then he experiences Jesus's works. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now be healed. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So that they were amazed, and they glorified God, and they said, we have never seen anything like this before. This is amazing. That Jesus not only forgives the man, but he heals him. That Jesus not only cares for the spiritual, but Jesus also cares for the physical. This man got so much more than what he came there for. This man leaves totally different than he was when he walked into that room. When he was dragged into that room, he walks out of that room completely, totally different. This man's life has been changed. His life has been utterly transformed forever. 
Okay, not just for the day, not just for the week, not just for a year, not for 10 years or 20 years, but for all of eternity, that his sins have been forgiven, his body has been healed, that his past has been erased, his burdens have been released, that he has a brand new life because of Jesus. And this is the same thing that Jesus does for us. That when we come to him open-hearted and and open-handed, that Jesus, he not only forgives us, but Jesus, he can also heal us. That the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we love, the way that we give, everything about our lives, it begins to change when we meet Jesus because not only does he forgive us, but Jesus also, he heals us. I mean, could you just imagine being this man on this day? Could you just imagine his life? I mean, he has friends lowering him down from a ceiling that he's standing or he is, he is in front of Jesus and Jesus lays hands and says, son, pick up your mat, rise. He didn't say just stand. He says to rise. He rises. Strength returns to his body. Dignity returns to his life. He has identity. He stands. He rises in front of everyone. And his friends are watching from the ceiling. You have people outside, the religious leaders in front of Jesus and everybody. And that man walks out of this room different than he was when he walked in those doors. Because when you meet Jesus, everything, it begins to change. And this is what Jesus does for our lives. That we come to him broken, desperate, in need. And Jesus, he forgives us. But Jesus, he also heals us. That our lives no longer look the way they did before we met him. Now here's my question for you. What is easier? For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven or you have been healed. Which is easier for Jesus or which is more difficult for Jesus? To forgive the man or to heal the man? I want you to think about that for just a sec. Is it more difficult to heal or is it more difficult to forgive? Because Jesus, he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the ability to be able to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So the question is, which is more difficult, to forgive or to heal? Now, on the surface, we read this and we think, well, healing is more difficult, obviously. I mean, because, well, we say, well, I I forgive you, right? But Jesus, for him, it means something different. Because when we see this, we think healing's more complicated. I mean, sometimes we pray for people and they get healed, and sometimes we pray for them and they don't get healed. It seems very tricky, but healing to Jesus, it wasn't tricky. Right? We've already seen this multiple times, that Jesus, he heals, he performs miracles, he, he, he has deliverance moments. Healing is no problem for Jesus. However, up until this point, nobody has been forgiven. Jesus hasn't forgiven a single person. And then Jesus asked this question, what is more difficult to forgive or to heal? And Jesus uses a healing to prove the forgiveness. Because Jesus knows forgiveness is impossible. Jesus understands that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus forgives sins. See, Jesus knows the pain of forgiveness. Jesus knows the cost of forgiveness. Jesus knows the price of forgiveness because Jesus paid that price with his life. This is the first time that the cross enters into the story of Mark. That this is a foreshadowing of what is about to come because Jesus, he knows I'm going to have to trade places with this man. 
That if this man ever wants to walk, I'm going to have to walk to Calvary. If this man's legs are ever going to work, my legs must be broken. If this man, his suffering is to come to an end, then I must suffer. Jesus knows that if this man wants to be forgiven, if this man wants to be healed, if there's any hope of redemption, then I must die. And Jesus does it. That Jesus goes to the cross and he trades places with us. That Jesus, he does it lovingly, humbly, graciously, and sacrificially. That Jesus, he goes to the cross and trades places. That Jesus, he lived the perfect life, the life without sin. So that way we can be forgiven of our sin. That Jesus, he goes to the cross, he receives the penalty of our sin. So that way we can receive his sinlessness. That Jesus, he was taken from that cross, buried into a grave, and that he would resurrect and that he would give us a life that we could never earn. That we could be forgiven and we could also be healed. Because that's what Jesus does. That Jesus forgives and Jesus heals. That's his word, that's his work at work in our lives today. And so some of you, you're here today and Jesus' word to you is you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Just come to me. Come to me just as you are broken, desperate, in need, faults, flaws, failures, past, present, future. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. You need to understand the forgiveness that Jesus has given. That the cost has already been paid. The price has already been paid. Jesus, he has already paid the price, the cost for forgiveness. Jesus just says, come to me and I'll forgive you. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your situation either. Because Jesus, he cares about both. That he cares about the spiritual, but friends, he also cares about the spiritual. That he knows you, where you're at, who you are. He knows what you're going through and he cares about that too. Because Jesus not only forgives us, but he also heals us. That you are able to live a different life. You are able to experience life in new ways. That you are able to be set free from whatever it is that holds you, whatever it is that binds you, whatever it is that brings you down. You are able to be healed from that in the way that you love, the way that you live, the way that you give. Everything, it begins to change because it's impossible to meet Jesus and stay the same. So not only does Jesus say, you're forgiven, but Jesus also says, and you're healed. And so as we close, some of you, you're here today and, and, and you need Jesus's word. You need to understand, I, I, I'm, I'm forgiven. And, and you walk around with your shoulders down and you feel defeated and destroyed. You need to understand, no, no, no. You've been forgiven. Others of you, you need to experience Jesus's works. Let him work in your life so that way you can live a new life. And some of you, you, you believe in Jesus's words, right? You say, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Yeah, but you haven't been healed that you're still living in your sin, you're still laying on your mat, you're still holding on to your past, you're not getting up, and you're not going home, and your life doesn't look any different than the moment you met Jesus. You might have been forgiven, but today you need to be healed. 
And others of you, you want to be healed. You want Jesus's works. You say, okay, Jesus, here I am, right? Fix me. Here's my pain. Here's my problems. Here's everything that I've done wrong. You need to fix me. You need to fix me. You need to fix me. And Jesus says, before I fix you, I need to forgive you. Before I get to work, you need to listen to my words. You need to be forgiven because the greatest problem in your life is not your situation, friends. The greatest problem in your life is your sin. And before Jesus gets to work, you need to listen to his words. You are forgiven and you are healed. Some of your lives have come undone because, well, the holy knot has come undone. That you want the words without the works, you want the works without the words, but truth is, friends, we need both. Because without it, everything begins to fall apart. That Jesus begins to come unraveled, our sights begin to become dim, we trip, we fall, and it's not going to end very well for us. But what I believe is that God wants to bring that back together. That God wants to make that word and that work at work in your life. So that way when people see you, they will be able to say, we glorify God because we have never seen anything like this before. The power of Jesus' words. The power of Jesus' work at work in your life. And so some of you, you need to be forgiven. That you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to give him your life. You need to be forgiven. Our prayer team wants to pray for you. We have a team in the back. Become a Christian today. So that way you can live a new life with Jesus. Others of you, you need to be healed. Inner healing, spiritual healing, a physical healing. You need a touch from Jesus in your life. And so we would want to pray for you as well. So that as a church, we can live lives of Jesus' word, Jesus' work. So that when people see redemption, they'll be able to say, we have never seen anything like this before. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that our lives will be lived for the glory of God and for our greatest joy. Amen. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.